0: With your MX card entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select campus events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears.
1: Hey wanna welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. And um, though it is the heart of college basketball season, the NBA has cranked up with the trade deadline. And we have more great conversations and content for you getting ready for the NCAA tournament and for the playoff push in the NBA. We uh, we conclude, over the next two podcasts, um, our Jack Easterby series. Jack was portrayed in a Sports Illustrated article as some sort of nefarious religious zealot leader in Houston. But his journey is fascinating, as well as the reality to who he is and what he's about. And how he had a meteoric rise within the world of the National Football League. So, when we started, here was a college golfer and basketball player in South Carolina who began the climb with an internship in Jacksonville, spending time at the University of South Carolina. And then ultimately, to the Kansas City Chiefs. Working with the Kansas City Chiefs with Scott Pioli. And of course, Pioli is a former Patriots guy. This portion of the journey takes him to the New England Patriots. That's where we pick up with Jack Easterby. So, Jack, you, you mentioned uh, 2013, you lose to the Ravens. Okay? But that loss, excuse me, loss to the Broncos. You mentioned 2013, lose to the Broncos. And that helped kind of trigger some changes that allowed the, the, the next wave of the Patriots um, what did, uh, what, what was your role in, in, on all this at this time?
2: Well, I think Bill and Robert were both phenomenal at knowing that, um, there were certain things, uh, coming back from that game that we wanted to evaluate. And there were certain things that you don't evaluate, like, like, so, you know, that Tom Brady's your quarterback, right. And you know that you've got a certain set of skill players between Danny Amendola and Julian and, and Rob Gronkowski and and certain guys that obviously from a personnel perspective that you're not evaluating, you're just looking for how you're going to use them differently and those types of things. But I think from a standpoint of team building and creating uh, a new uh, unity amongst the team, I think what Bill really looked to me for was how can we strategically look at a 12-month program, meaning not just when the players are in the building and we've got a game that week, But how can we look at a 12 month program that develops all of the players and the staff uh, holistically as people, uh, allowing them to set goals for themselves, allowing them to know how they contribute to team success and really diving into uh, their well-being and also their job description uh, and encouraging them to improve those things. So we did a lot of fun things. Uh, where we were able to you know meet in small groups we met in the offseason uh you know with let's say five to seven players on each side of the ball and they were able to set some goals for themselves uh within with our coordinator uh, we were able to meet with some of the coaches individually uh do some goal setting leadership uh, development with them uh, and then also we began to do some off-season um Let's just call it team building, which was really cool because, like, if you think about it within the NFL, you know, the offseason's really changed over the last, let's say, three to five years because the financial structure of how the NFL works, right? There's not a ton of incentive uh, for players to show up unless they've got some sort of contractual obligation. You know, there's not a lot of financial incentive for them to be there all off-season, right? And we saw that, you know, during COVID and some of these other more recent off-seasons, it you know, it's not a ton of off-season uh motivation for those guys as far as being in the building of their team. But when you're a part of a 12-month curriculum that's building towards something, right? That you know that, for example, you know, captain selection or uh being able to be a leader on the team or being able to be um, you know, have a role where you're helping decide potentially where we're going to stay for you know when we go on a road trip. Like those are decisions that are made in the off season. And so when your those events are elevated into the off season curriculum, then it incentivizes players to want to be a part of it.
1: So, so give me a, give me an example of uh, first, you know, part of what you talked about and part of your background is in trying to find the right. And when you said you know you had the skill position players. You want to add the right pieces. That draft, 2013, okay? Jamie Collins, uh, Logan Ryan, Deron Harmon. Aaron Dobson was probably a miss. They've they've struggled with wide receivers. You just have in terms of evals. But in the first three rounds to get those three players, was there anything different? Was there anything when they asked you, when you're in the room and you're discussing a player and the evals, that they specifically looked for that maybe in previous incarnations they had gotten away from?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I I can't speak to before I was there, you know, exactly what, you know, their detail was. But I can say this. I know that, you know, Nick, who was the uh, director of player personnel at the time and then obviously Bill and all of the coaching staffs, Uh, you know, began to put a huge emphasis on character. Right. So when we would bring those guys in for their 30 man visits is what we call them, right. Where they come in and and we interview the college players in in advance of the draft, you know, how they would fit in the role, right. That they were projected to have. uh, How do you
1: do 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 that? How do you do that? What's, what's, what was your personal science? What was your personal um, eval or in terms of somebody's character?
2: Well, I think the way you want to do anything with a projected role within a business is you want to try to simulate that role while they're doing that interview process. So I think that, you know, our coordinators and Bill did a great job of when they were in our building, simulating that day, right? Teaching them some material, right? Asking them to regurgitate that material, understanding specifically what that day would look like from a standpoint of start to finish uh, communicating with coaches, position coaches, and then uh, having asking some questions about you know how they're taking care of their body, asking some questions about you know potentially maybe how they're uh, uh, being receiving information in college currently, uh, how they're doing their own personal care, maybe their support system, understanding who's helping them, and so what we did was we kind of restructured the day of those visits around simulating what it'll be like when they become a patriot, and I think. You know, Bill uh, really did an amazing job of getting to the core competencies uh, that would show whether that player was a fit or not. And so you mentioned uh, those players there. You know, I would say coming off uh, the next year, uh, 14, 15, you know, starting to add players like David Andrews, right? And Joe Tooney and those types of players, you began to add not only, uh, you know, a competent, you know, player, but there was just an influx of amazing humans, great character, where the simulation of those job descriptions getting a little more accurate both on the field and off the field at what players were required to do, uh, it began to fit perfectly. And you throw that with the greatest quarterback of all time and, quite frankly, a high-character roster, greatest coach of all time, and it was, it was hard to beat us. Uh, it, w- it was really hard,
1: hard to beat you guys. That's, that's a very accurate uh, description. Um that next year, you know, you, you mentioned how the, the Denver loss kind of shaped shaped the run. Um there was the Ravens game was a close game. Close game.
2: Down I, 14. You're talking about the next year we were down 14 yeah, twice and yeah, then yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the throwback game. You remember Julian uh and uh Danny's pass where he you know Tom threw it to Uh, Julian and then Julian laid it on the money down, down to, to Danny. Um, So, yeah, that was a, and then also that was the game where Josh created the formation that, you know, uh, Harbaugh was so upset about with, you know. Okay. uh, So, so,
1: so I've I've, I've talked about this a lot. Okay. And, and because that led to the next game, which was the deflate gate game. Right. And then there's, there's all the talk of in the NFL, which is like, well, why would they think anything of the footballs unless Baltimore you know, where half the indie staff came from. So take me, take me back to that formation. Cause what I remember is, uh, Brady after the game said they should read the rule book, right? <laughs> it it right. was, it was, it was amazing. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of in all of these different rooms, in all these different discussions in the time. Uh, what was that like to see play out where, I mean, here you have Baltimore's a great defensive team, and they got confused by some tackle eligible stuff, where they they obviously
2: were caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Well, I think let's go back to just generally speaking. You know how great, and I, I keep saying this, but I mean it, how great Bill and the coordinators were at that time at making the other team play. You know, left handed, right handed, yeah, you know, yeah being able to say, hey, here's what you do well, right And our goal is to take that away or in this case on offense, here's what we think you do well and or are able to do and we're going to make you not be able to do that and or match us. And so I think one of the, you know, independent of the actual um, formation and, and how Josh used that, I think one of the things that you know we would do each week is when Bill and, and Josh and, and Matt and Joe at that time sat down, it was what are a few things that we know we can execute, right? Whether it's a a punt formation or a, you know, potential, obviously a trick play, like a double pass. What are some things that we can execute? Not things that are just pie in the sky. Like what are things that we know we can execute that will make the other team feel like they're not prepared? And obviously that's when the other team begins to crack, right? Is when they, they face something that, Although they've prepared hard every week, but they face something that's like, oh, man, what's going on here? We're not prepared for this. And then that begins to build momentum as you execute things that they're not prepared for. And so obviously every defense, you know, subs in relationship to personnel. That's just obviously football one on one. Right. When you change personnel, you you sub. And so. Um, I think some defenses like the Ravens that are really, really good, they sub based on uh, not just on personnel, but potentially on matchups or how they may want to play the play. And so they uh, they may be, a uh, you know, have a player or two that they want in the game, regardless of our of our personnel. And so when you begin to say that, hey, we're not going to sub for multiple plays in a row and we're going to begin to say that you're going to have to play with the players you have match those up. You know, again, it's the, it's the whole chess versus checkers type of situation. Right. And so um, I would say another one that doesn't go uh, that people don't talk about as much, but is that Bill and, and Joe Judge, who was the special teams coach, uh, began to work in 14-15 in season on what we called slow punt, uh, which was an evolution at the time and, and other teams have done it. But we did it where if we're in the logo type of area, right, we uh, wouldn't go out. Uh, wouldn't run the punt team out immediately, right? We would wait until later in the clock, and then we would be organized and run them out with, let's just say, ten seconds left, and then quickly punt the ball, right? And that makes the exchange on the defensive side tougher, and would hopefully make them use a timeout. And so um, that was another one that I, I felt was so creative by our coaching staff, uh, just to you know make them feel like, oh man, they're prepared and we're not, right? Right. That's, no, no, no would, question. You know,
1: and they 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 would do that a lot of times. Line of uh, down on the goal line, right where they would line up, would run up quickly for Brady sneak. You know where right. they 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 couldn't get organized. Um, right. There was some just little coaching things that they were able to do
2: that were really unique. So well, and let me say this too: it's so fun because there's so many little things, like you're talking about the red zone there. I mean, there's so many little things that go into Bill and Josh's, at that time, offensive philosophy that I thought were so healthy. Like, for example, like, you know, most of the time when they're in the low red, right, they were under center, right? And obviously, we had LeGarrette Blunt, We had some really good running backs. But in the end, like, you just think about ball security, right? If you're under center, you're going to be closer to the ball, right? The ball security is going to be a higher probability that you're going to receive a good snap and you're going to hand the ball off and things are going to go okay versus a high snap fumble versus, you know, something crazy happening with the ball. Just little things like that to make sure they were never afraid. If, for example, if we run the play on first down, um, Josh sees that it's open on second down, they weren't afraid to, to what we call Xerox, which is run that play again, right? Run the same play. If we think it's going to work, run it again. And so, there was no ego in the play calling. It was whatever works, whatever helps us, you know, obviously execute. Um, and I thought the creativity there was really good. Um, and, and you know, what's interesting, too, and you know this because of basketball and and how many different deviations you can run off of one play in and, and sets is when you have smart players, right? And I think of players like, you know, James White and Shane Vereen and guys that were, let's say, multi-position uh, running backs or or guys that did, you know, multiple things in pass protection or, you know, guys like you mentioned, Daron Harmon, Logan Ryan, who played multiple positions in the secondary. You can do multiple things with those types of players because they've got high emotional intelligence. they got high, you know, intellectual intelligence. They can apply things under pressure. And so the deviation and the creativity are really at their peak. Right. Um, the deflate
1: gate game. Uh, when did you when did you become aware that Indy was challenging the the football inflation?
2: I think it was after the game. Somebody had mentioned to me something about you know they had mentioned something to one of the authorities uh, in relationship to the game administration authorities where somebody had said you know challenged it and quite frankly because of my experience in other sports and knowing that you know sometimes you get a ball you know, whether it's in basketball or in, in baseball or other sports or golf, you get a ball that's less than its best, whether it's a scraped ball or, a, you know, a ball that's got more padding, less padding. You know, I, I personally didn't quite give it the attention that it needed at that point when I was first notified, because I, I just I felt like the margin right of input or impact uh, was minimal. And so I just thought, man, there's no way that this is going to be you know, a big deal because first of all, within you know, within football, you use multiple balls. And so I was just thinking like the K-ball is always over inflated, right? Always it's always inflated gr- greater,
1: right? And you know, you have different types of ball and every quarterback likes a ball a certain way.
2: You know what my mind went to first, Doug, and you'll relate to this because is in basketball when you go to the conference tournament, like I remember with Don Staley when I was in South Carolina, we went to the conference tournament, and I think we might have been up in Greenville or uh, one of those neutral site type of situations, and you go there, and you're playing with balls who've never bounced, brand, brand new, brand new basketball.
1: They have a machine that is supposed to wear them in, but it doesn't work. Now, it, it changed in, it, it really changed. Yeah, uh, probably in the 2000s, the the Wilson uh, solution was right. re- was really good. Out of the, it, its problem was how long it lasted. But initially, right. it was really tacky but i don't That's know if the, i don't know if the women had that initially when the men had it and here's an interesting story this is like you know wilson now does the nba basketball yeah
2: 1999
1: in the summer and in the fall the wilson solution it was like their their beta test they were and when i got to oklahoma state we used the wilson solution which is the synthetic one i didn't like synthetic basketballs i like leather basketballs leather basketballs as you know being a basketball player hard to break in once you break them in, they last a long time. They were also really expensive. So the solutions were really created for high schools and lower levels because they're less expensive. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we use Wilson Ball. Anyway, so I get to Oklahoma State, and I was like, why aren't we using leather basketball? So, like, well, the solutions feel better. They're easier. They're cheaper or whatever. And I was like, what do they use in the NCAA tournament? They're like, well, they use a Rollins. No, no. Do they use leather? They use synthetic. They use leather. Well, we're going to the NCAA tournament, so we're using leather basketball. That was my, that was my pitch there to coach. Go. Right. right. I was like, you guys don't know because you ain't played the last two years. (laughs) So they use a Rollins. So we used the leather anyway. Summer for my senior year, they sent us a batch of solutions. And first week we're like, these are awesome. I mean, because you make shots you shouldn't make both (laughs) off the backboard, especially it sticks and goes in. And This is the newer ones are, are even better. But two, three weeks in, they were like bricks. They were slippery. They were awful. They got dusty. Yeah, they got yeah. really dusty. They collected because they were designed to absorb sweat. They absorbed everything. That's so right. We, so we played with the with the leather. So I know exactly what you're talking about, right? The other thing is, there's a famous story. I don't know if you know this. The old Boston Celtics in the '80s used to underinflate their ball because mm. they were a team that they passed the ball more than they dribbled the ball, and they didn't wow. mind playing slow. The Lakers. They overinflated their basketball. You know, the seven to nine pounds, they'd be like nine and a half because they wanted that thing bouncing going to get it to magic and going fast break. They weren't really a shooting team. They didn't need a soft touch when they hit the rim. Right. So so all of this stuff is as – but this is the first time it kind of came to the attention. So what I remember, well, the first thing is I love that they challenged the balls, they replaced them at halftime, and that's actually when the Patriots dominated the game That it took off with the properly inflated footballs. But I remember the Monday afterwards, like Tom Brady had to answer all these questions and, you know, he really looked very surprised. He was very defensive and it wasn't in anywhere near the normal tone, especially for Brady, who's now finally getting back to the Super Bowl. What were you doing on that day on that on that Monday?
2: Well, I think for everybody in the building, right, you, you always take the news, you know, whatever the news is from the day, you always take it in just to understand a little bit about what's going on around you. But I, I think when you go to the Super Bowl, right, and this is really independent of a year or situation, the day after the AFC championship is always a special day because logistically there's a launch right within the building of all these different things that you have to do to be able to prepare for the Super Bowl right so tickets and travel and you know all of the different uh, marketing um, kind of objectives that begin to set in with the players and obviously your, my goal uh, is to serve the players and the coaches in that, in that day the best I could with those logistics onslaught. So I wasn't overly concerned with this issue other than I knew it was news and I knew that potentially would come up. I, I wasn't overly concerned. And the reason really was the way Bill had trained everybody, and I think this is the right way, and I've heard the same of uh, whether it's, you know, Coach K or Popovich or – you know, the longer standing coaches in different sports is like, you know, things that potentially don't help us win or potentially, you know, margin of win in relationship to, you know, initiatives, they really shouldn't get that much attention, right? So if we're talking about what color jersey we're wearing or we're talking about, you know, all those, those types of things, um, you know, that doesn't really matter unless, you know, you can you can say, hey, here's the reason that it's going to help us win, right? And so this was kind of fell into that category where I knew there'd be some defense and some conversation about it, but I just didn't think it was that important because I just didn't think there was a margin there of actual influence. And mind you, the fact that it was raining and I, I want to say we had, you know, a, a big rushing, you know, total that game in relationship to Lagaret having a good game and a few other players on the ground. So I didn't really think like, you know, um, I mean, there's been times in games like ba- especially basketball where you play a game and you're like, oh, we shouldn't have won that game. Like whether you threw in some threes or or something happened. Right. But that just didn't feel like that type of game. Right. Um, I just felt like we won that game going away. And so I, I didn't have a, a real big uh, guilty conscience going through the week, no matter how much the media pressed the issue.
1: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but, but for Brady and, and you having a character coach as your background, to have his character called into question, I mean, this is – and look, and obviously, you know, years – Prior to you joining the Patriots, they had they had Spygate that they had to that defend themselves against. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering what that 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 Super Bowl preparation was like, considering again, first time ever, Tom Brady's character is called into question.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it obviously had an impact because whenever you question somebody's character, sp- specifically Tom, who has extremely high character. Um, I do think, obviously, there there's some things swirling there. But I think, uh, again, even to look at the two different issues of of back to the filming incident and then this, I, I just think you're dealing with two totally separate scenarios, and or let's call of, it. Of, of, of course you day. are. Of course you are. But you have to like you're looking at it from a, a
1: very realistic understanding of like the two things are not in any way related. Okay, but one of the things that's fascinating to me and we'll probably we'll get to it maybe not this time we'll get to it next time is as Tom how he went from he was hated with the Patriots right I mean the Patriots have always been despised by many people uh, fans around the league right right whereas right. whereas you like me not being a being I'm not it's not even about being a journalist just understanding sports like the ability to I always wish I was a Patriot fan I just do, right? I, 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 I can't Because, damn, they always figured it out, right? They always seem to figure it out. And uh, we talked earlier about him taking less money and what they were able to do in the waiver wire and, you know, the Troy Browns playing both ways. And, you know, from West to Amendola to Edelman, you know, finding these guys that other people hadn't, they hadn't been as valuable to. And, I mean, Wes Welker, should have at least a conversation of being in the Hall of Fame. Like, he was the most right. dynamic third-down threat uh, maybe in the history of the league, definitely during his his time with the Patriots. But they they weren't well-liked, and a fan, and I'd say many in the media, connected to, oh, this is the Patriots. They always find a way. You know, they right. want to skirt the rules. They're the bad right. guys of the NFL. They, and, you know, coming, coming off the week where Tom Brady's like, better read the rule book, you know? Yep. So it's an it was an interesting dynamic. Then you have the game, which this was the game with the Malcolm Butler play, wasn't it? That was that that was yes. the same year. Yeah. What's What's amazing about that one is two things get lost in that play, in, in that in, because that interception was so much a part of preparation, and as you said, the intelligence of Malcolm to remember the preparation, need, right. know what is coming, jump the route, make the play. But the two things are lost is people forgot Patriots are down 10 heading into the fourth quarter. Yep. And Brady, regardless of win or lose, he led them on a great touchdown drive. Right. And then Belichick, I, I was sitting there watching the game going, let him score. Let him score. You get Brady gets the ball back. He didn't let him score, but he also didn't call timeout. Right. And it seemed to work for him. I just I wonder how what what your lens, what your view was of how that game ended, because, again, mine is of a fan. Yours is Mm -hmm. somebody who you're around for all the preparation, all the discussions, everything that's going on. What do you remember about the end of that game?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about Super Bowl um, plays and Super Bowl memories, I personally, as I just sit with my wife and reminisce, I, I remember different things in relationship to the key plays of some of these amazing games. Right. So, like, you know, for example, the, the Super Bowl comeback play or comeback we had in, in um In Houston against Against Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Julio Jones's catch. That that was like the the almost greatest catch ever.
1: Everybody talks about
2: Edelman's catch. Julio's catch was amazing. Amazing.
1: That's
2: right. That's right. That's right. Or, you know, I remember Dante Hightower coming off the edge, you know, and them, you know, sliding the protection and putting the back (laughs) on him and, you know, avoiding the back and creating the strip sack. Right. And so, uh, there are plays that I feel athletically are just like, wow. And I don't know if that's just having a background in, in basketball where you've seen, you know, athletic plays that, you know, people dunking on people or things
1: like freaks of nature that you're like, I don't. It's a great point. It's like that's right. When you have an athletic background, like anybody can see these normal, spectacular plays. But there are certain plays you're like, I don't think it translates on TV how freaky. What some of these guys can do is, is that,
2: is that fairway? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and let's, let's, uh, in, and you just mentioned the drive. I think it's a, you know, before that in the game, Julian Edelman runs, uh, basically, you know, just a short little in cut route. Um, basically, and if you get a chance to watch that game, um, he just runs a little return, right? At, he's in single coverage, uh, in the red zone. And he had run that route earlier in the game, and we had missed it. And he runs us a, a single return route. He kind of ducks his head under the defender. It's one of the best footwork routes. I mean, it's clinic tape, and he catches it all by himself in the end zone to score. So I remember that play, it, it, specifically speaking to the Arizona Super Bowl. I remember that return route that he ran that was just unbelievable. I remember Dante Hightower on the play before the Malcolm Butler play kind of tripping Marshawn. And getting through and and kind of making this kind of almost like trip with his uh, putting his arm out and stopping the ball, uh, which obviously created some doubt and hesitation in their mind on whether they could run the ball. And, you know, there was a no brainer. Everybody says, run the ball, run the ball. Right. Well, what happens is when you've got players like Hightower, uh, you know, and other players, you know, Vince Wilfork, who are who are decent run stoppers you know, as a play caller, you start thinking, all right, well, I can't keep doing the same thing. I got to do something different here. Right. And so that puts some hesitation uh, in their minds. As far as timeout usage, you know, defensive timeout usage is a whole different category than offensive time- timeout usage. Right. And I wouldn't put myself in an expert category of timeout usage by any means, but I would just say watching Bill, who is an expert, I would just say defensive timeout usage and how it's used, whether your defense is gassed or whether obviously you're trying to get the ball back or whether or not, uh, you know, you have a situation where you you had the wrong personnel in the game and you just got to burn one to get everybody set up right. I, I think there's a massive amount of reasons you do or don't use timeout. Um, you know, him not using a timeout there, I, I think that the play clock and, and the way that that play winds down, uh, it looks like potentially – making them freeze and us having a chance, you know, to to get our hand on a ball or potentially stop them, uh, probably is is decent high probability, right? right? Um, because the way they got down there, if you remember, was essentially a almost like a freak play, remember? So they throw the free play, yeah. They throw the over out to, you know, Malcolm, it's a double tip situation. You know, and then Duran has to, I think, tag him down or maybe Devin uh, because uh, we didn't even know if he had caught the ball. Right. Right. And this is before a lot of the stuff that goes on now with the replay stuff. So uh, it wasn't like either team, you know, was moving the ball just free flow. Right. There was a lot of, you know, let's just say, you know, Brady stuff was very methodical. And then on their side, there was a lot of chunk plays that were. Uh, Russell extending the play and kind of throwing the ball up so I think there was reason to believe that our defense could could hold it uh, specifically if there was going to be you know uh, you know between the tackles running type of stuff so you know him him not calling time out there I think is is uh, obviously it worked out right and so whenever it works out it looks genius but I think I would say (laughs) the defensive the defensive timeout and and again, I just use basketball because we both know it so well is like calling a timeout after a made basket. Yeah, yeah, is is totally, you know, discretionary from a coach's standpoint, right? A lot of people do that to set their defense, a lot of people do it to sub. But if you're let's say down X amount and you don't need to set your defense, you don't need to sub, there's no real reason to do it. So same thing here. I think if you can get the players on the field, you believe that the clock in some ways and and that last play not working out is potentially to your benefit, and now they're beginning to question themselves, and you can match them uh, with the personnel with within the play clock. It might be better to let it run, and that builds a little pressure on the play caller.
1: What was that like to be a part of a Super Bowl winning team? That was the first one for you. That's right.
2: That's what? right. Yeah, it was – surreal um you know you think about i'll tell you this and this is going to sound a little cheesy but you can respect this because of your relationship with teams and being a player is gosh you you immediately think about the journey right like the moment was so big right and malcolm you know catching that ball and 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 everybody celebrating with him and you know, hugging him and and obviously all that. But you immediately, once that subsides, you, you go back to the hotel preparing for, you know, the after party, you know, with my family. And you're just thinking about this journey, man. You're just thinking about, you know, on to Cincinnati, you know, and you're thinking about all these things that w- go on throughout the course of a 12 month uh, period where you're launching that team, that specific team. And, you know, people that, Uh, may have been injured and couldn't play in the game, right? Or people that uh, played a role, you know, certain weeks uh, played one role and then other weeks played another role. And then you're thinking about the growth of the people, right? How many people throughout the year grew? And, I mean, you got to remember when you go through an NFL season uh, different than um, some other sports, I mean, so much happens between when the players really show up in April, all the way through February. I mean, you're talking about children being born, right? People, you know, going through marriage, uh, you know, all the different things uh, that happen within a 12-month period of a football program. Life happens fast. And so, I remember sitting there thinking about, you know, that night, like, wow, look at all that's happened since this group first got together and the maturation of the group and, and thinking about just how cool that was to culminate in a moment like that was just special. Yeah. Um. How,
1: What? what is the, is there a secret sauce to their ability to, you know, Brady's famous for what's your favorite Super Bowl, the next one, right? But there's something to their mentality because so many other teams, usually teams that lose in Super Bowl, but so many other teams, look at the Rams, um, you know, you go, uh, Buccaneers have never been the same since they won their Super Bowl a couple years ago, obviously, their ability to sustain success. They lost the next year. Uh, you guys lost the next year to, to Denver. That was a dominant defense. right? That was Peyton's last year uh, in a really, really close game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then won the Super Bowl, and we'll get to that um, the following year after that. But after winning the Super Bowl, in terms of your learning process, what did you learn from Bill and that that group in terms of how they handled success and then we're able to continue to push forward to the next season without resting on their laurels.
2: I would say this, and we'll probably talk about this later as we talk about you know the bigger picture of other franchises and sports in general. I would say um, because of the way that the hard cap works, right within the NFL, and then also the way that contracts and/or you know, let's say player uh, evaluation works. I, I think every year is its own entity. And so I think whether or not you understand it completely, uh, you know, as a as a uh, person who's working in the building, uh, no. I, you know, you may not understand completely every factor that, you know, coach or GM's going through to establish year to year success. But I, I would just say this is like, you know, the ability for Bill to you know, start over every year with essentially a blank whiteboard, understanding that there may be some key things that carry over. But if the reset button in our minds is the fact that things do not carry over, and that you have to reprove yourself to each other, you have to reprove yourselves to the game, you have to reprove yourselves to the building, you have to reprove yourself to practice, you have to reprove yourself to you know, uh, the group that you're working specifically with in your workflow, whether that's skilled players or our medical team or anything, I think Bill was very committed. And I think this is maybe, and I'm guessing, but probably because he had been a part of, you know, programs in Cleveland and the New York Giants and the Jets, where he knew how important each year was to try to build um, the Super Bowl, obviously, and the game uh, was the end of that year for that team. But very quickly it started, okay, what is the next Next year year. for the next year's team? Right. And so, you know, there was people playing in the Super uh, the pinnacle of their life and their athletic achievement that knew they wouldn't be back on the Patriots the following year. Right. right. I think you just really have to allow it to stand alone because the truth is that every year is its own year. And no matter how much you may want continuity from the emotional standpoint, it's just not set up that way, right? The structure is just not built for players and and coaches and uh, executives and everybody to stay every year um, within a franchise, you know? And so he was really uh, great about just saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to reprove ourselves to each other and to the league, you know, each calendar year. For you personally, um, where were you in terms of staying,
1: going, you know, because they're you know now you're involved you're you're kind of fully entrenched in the Patriots family, right? From your time with Scott um, in Kansas City to now in New England, and you know the the you know kind of the Patriot way had continued to to be in different spots in the league. Where were you after that first Super Bowl in terms of wanting to do more, or wanting to see what's next?
2: You know, that's a great question. I had seen so much after that Denver loss in 13, just the ability for Robert and for for Bill to have uh, you know strategic resets uh, on every level of the organization um, and or you know affirmations where there needed to be that you know after the 14 Super Bowl um, and us transitioning into the next year, you know, I knew we needed to double down on the high character approach around the building. I knew there was a lot of good people that were coming back, um, players and or uh, staff. And so um, I just felt like, you know, hey, Bill, whatever he gives me, you know, in additional roles or additional things, um, those would be things that I would do and and try to continue to prove myself, you know, to him and others that, um, you know, I could be trusted with whatever the tasks that I was given were. But um, yeah, that that year, I just was uh, obviously more than anything excited about uh, the next opportunity and and the conversations that we would have to double down on that high character approach that we had kind of engaged in in thirteen and fourteen.
1: So uh, that off season, that was the Brady meeting with the league, and you know, and the supposed smashing of the phone you know, and, and all that other kind of craziness. Um, and of course he played that whole year and then it was the following year that he sat the, the, the first four games. But in terms of always, you know, that that's the thing that people admire about Bill is they are, even when you win, you're always trying to find what's next, what to fix. Um, uh, What, 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 what was he, what did he think needed to be changed in order to continue on that path? As you said, like, there's lots of guys that they win the Super Bowl and hey, we can't have that part of the Patriot way is we can't just say because it was good enough last year, it's going to be good enough next year, right? But what was Bill pushing for after that win over the Seahawks?
2: Well, I, I want to say, and I don't remember exactly, but I want to say somewhere in there was when we redid the building. Robert uh, you know, made a capital investment in the building and the actual infrastructure of the Uh, first floor uh, where we operated out of uh, from a football operation perspective. And so there was some construction that was going on in the locker room. There was some construction that went on within our meeting rooms and other areas uh, to just continue to show the players and the staff that, um, you know, they, uh, the whole operation was championship caliber from top to bottom. Um, So that was good. Um, I felt like, you know, obviously, you know, from a standpoint of continuity, you know, I think Bill did an amazing job, you know, after that Super Bowl of continuing to develop the staff, you know. I mean, I just look back at independent of of um the how the roles were at the time. I mean, you look at that staff. I mean, there's just some amazing, you know, staff members between, you know, Brian Flores and, and Matt Patricia and uh, you know, Chad O'Shea, who uh, had a huge role uh, as a wide receivers coach. And then, you know, Josh McDaniels, who did a great job with the offense. I just that that offseason, you know, and then into the next year, there was some awesome construction around the building that began to, uh, I think, elevate the workflow and continued to develop how the modus operandi was on the first floor. And then. Uh, uh, the double down on the staff really to continue those roles so that we could, you know, cast the vision for, um, again, a high character roster, a high character operation um, that could function under pressure uh, for long periods of time. And remember, like, again, if you're talking about playing an extra three or four games um, and you're talking about playing an extra three or four games every year, you're talking about more time together, right? You're talking about more practices. You're talking about more issues that come up throughout the year. And so, again, having high character people is all the more important because the reality is that that much time together is naturally going to be a challenge because, you know, we all have stuff going on in life. And so being able to navigate it uh, was, was, was very important. Um,
1: what was the second Super Bowl like? You know, you, you know they lost to Denver. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're talking now in 16 where yeah. Brady was suspended first four games and there was already the interesting, you know, Garoppolo had been drafted and many thought he was the heir apparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously he got hurt and then, you know, uh, Jacoby Brissett comes in and heck they against, against the Texans, right? They run option football much of the game. Yeah.
2: That's yeah, right.
1: they they come out and run a high school college offense. What what stands out in that season to you?
2: Well, I think again, I I just hate to keep saying the same phrase, but you think about the players that were added, right? So uh, right around in there, Trey Flowers began to emerge as a, a just a solid, you know, high character, multi position defensive player, right? We signed Chris Hogan. Uh, who, at that time, uh, had been you know kind of a I believe was more of a special teams player in uh, Buffalo and other places, and and um, had you know come to the to Patriots and just brought amazing grit uh, as a as a speedy wide receiver who could uh, do multiple things, and so um, you know we draft Malcolm Mitchell who uh, had played both offense and defense at Georgia um, and. Um, again, I mentioned, I think it was a you, lacrosse
1: player, right? Wasn't oh, Hogan a lacrosse player? He,
2: yes, he was. He was, he had played, you know, Penn state and, um, uh, had done both sports, uh, for a while, but yeah, it was just a, a gritty, tough, you know, tough dude. Um, and you go into the Super Bowl uh, to fast forward it, it, it was all of those things, right? It began to be all of those things that really helped, uh, turn the corner. And if you watch that game closely, you'll see, I mean, you see offensive line protection, right? Tooney and those guys who who had been drafted, who were just consistent, tough, you know, high character, repeat performer kind of guys, right? And then Hogan's showing up with a tough catch, you know, late in the game, right? And Mitchell shows up with a tough catch late in the game. Uh, James White, who was, we saw through what he went through personally, how just an amazingly high character guy he was. And so I think, again, there was just a real push at, you know, high football character and high personal character. And that gave that Teflon type of feel to uh, the locker room, no matter what happened from an adversity standpoint outside. So you mentioned Brissette, you know, obviously Jimmy and, and Tom. I mean, those guys are all amazing humans, right? So you don't have that type of operation where you're transitioning quarterbacks, you're transitioning scheme a little bit, you're transitioning whose role is going to be what week to week. Without the amazing character to be able to sustain those changes regardless of what you know the outside noise is and I think that to me is is was the testimony uh of that year was you know is there a way for us to stay solid no matter what's going on outside and then build towards the end of the year being you know obviously the best football
1: um i, I to, to I want to get to the back to the game in one second but um I'm sure you've been fooled before, right? And by fooled, I mean in terms of a character eval, right? <laughs> How long do you, before you know that, like, oh, that guy's a phony. Like, he he totally fooled us.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think in in the NFL, like I mentioned about the offseason, right, I think that the, the environments are so different right now, right, from college, right? So when you're looking at a college athlete – who is, let's say, going to school, right? Lifting weights. Uh, he's got X amount of stars. He's been celebrated. He's, you know, transitioning into a role there. Maybe he plays wide receiver and that's all he does, right? He plays X amount of plays. Uh, he's not involved in special teams, you know, and, you know, he knows his, his, his job is pretty much safe. And then you come to the NFL and you've got a totally different set of let's call it job descriptions. And, um, and so the reason I mentioned the offseason is I think when you get there in the off season, after having been in college and a whole different job description, that's when you begin to earn your NFL job description. Right. Can you learn multiple positions? Right. Are you going to be able to be out of practice every day and be healthy and durable and, and sustain the level of performance to get the reps in with the quarterback or in, in some case in defensive side uh, with the coordinator and potentially uh, with the scheme, you know, um, so I, I would say, you know, it's it's middle of the off season, right, where you see, okay, we've got X amount of people, we've got X amount of roles, and we think that most of these people can do these roles. Here's a couple that maybe we had projected to to be able to do these roles because we thought maybe in college they could do them, and. Doesn't look like they're going to be quite, you know, sustainable under pressure or repeatedly sustainable in relationship to the role that they want or that we had projected for them. So it's usually late in the off season that you start kind of seeing, okay, you know, who can who can do it, not, and then you obviously carry that over into training camp as the roles begin to be given out for real. Yeah, uh, play the games.
1: Okay, it's twenty-eight to three. Where were you sitting? Where where where, where are you
2: doing that that game? Twenty-eight to three. Where were you? So one of the jobs I had in game was, you know, the Microsoft tablets that they've given out now uh, that are so uh, famous. Is My job uh, in game was to make sure those were working and, and helping uh, coordinators and position coaches with making sure those are on. So I would just check them after every drive, make sure the players uh, have if they want to look at one uh, and all the pictures are uploading. So I would always go, you know, around the back of the bench, you know, check and look and see. Uh, what specifically um, you know needed to be happening, and so technologically, I was kind of uh, would do a loop behind the bench and then go stand on either side just to be out of the way as we sub and as players coming on and off in the game okay, so they um,
1: if my memory stands correct. Tom was not good in the first three quarters, two and a half, three quarters of that game, and one of the reasons was. They struggle with protection, right? And if Tom can't get to his spot, he's not the same guy. Nobody is, but especially Tom, how he how he plays. What changed?
2: Well, I would say a couple of things. I think we we saw this a little bit in Tampa with with when Tom goes empty. You know, when he goes empty, or potentially, you know, goes into the shotgun with that type of two minutes. This gets rid of so quick. Yeah, it's just the release points and the decisiveness and. You know, obviously, the uh, you know ability to predict who's going to be open and know the scheme and know the defense and what they're doing is just—it's the best of all time. And not saying that as if you know we're comparing it with somebody else, because quite frankly, I don't think there's anybody even in the ballpark when you're running two minute uh, or you have you're up against obviously time and score. Um, you know, him having to be able to take ten seconds to look at what the defense is doing to be able to make them declare it with maybe some motion or an indicator or two, and then have to snap the ball and play. I, there's nobody in the history of this game that's ever done it like that. And so obviously we got into some of that, right. As the end of the first half kind of closed. And then as we came out, you know, we knew we got to go here. So Josh did a great job getting him into some predictable uh, formations that he felt comfortable with. Uh, you know, we have, uh, Josh and, and Tom would do a great job at halftime of making changes um, that everybody else could understand. So maybe there's a play that you know we had run out of a certain formation that we felt uh, we could run out of a different formation, or maybe there was a a certain player that was a key part uh, in a play that we could trade out and, and run a different for a different player. Um, and there was some of that at halftime, but. More than anything, I would just say at halftime there was a real calm. I think there's been some stories written about Daron Harmon was sitting in the middle of the uh, locker room. You know, you had these obviously big, long locker rooms there at the Super Bowl, and he was riding the bike, and he kept just saying, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of time left, right? A lot of time left. You know, Julian Edelman said a couple cool things about, you know, we've been here before, right? We've been down before because there was other times where we had been down in big games um, in in the past. So. I just think it was a sense of calm, uh, a sense of understanding that that didn't go well and being able to flush it and move forward. Um, And I don't think there was any magic, you know, speech. Um, You know, uh, I think Bill, you know, obviously, like he always does, urged everybody to take it one possession at a time. And, you know, I think when we came back out and began to score, when you begin to score, you begin to look at the score. I know that sounds dumb, but, you know, if you think about it, like when you begin – when you're not scoring – you you feel defeated. The whole sideline feels defeated. But when you begin to score and execute, but but the, you begin but, to play. but 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 you know you miss the first extra point, score a touchdown, miss the extra That's point, fine. and it's one of the
1: things that that I I don't know. I understand the analytics of going for two. Okay, it's been explained to me. But one of the things that people I I don't think take a I don't think analytics shows is usually emotionally when you score you feel great. When you miss the extra point. In this case, it was a kick, right? But you miss an mm-hmm. extra point. It almost feels like you didn't score or the other team scored. So you finally score a touchdown and you miss an extra point. And that's kind of – that's like an amazing part of the story. We're talking about the Julio Jones catch. I like think it's an amazing yep. part of the story. is not told,
2: you yeah, know? That's, that's right. No, and and we missed an extra point, if I remember right, in the Philly Super Bowl, too. Uh, and I think uh, – An think extra point we, and a field goal, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that's very interesting about um, that is I think that going for two, right. There's a time and score element in the current, the way the NFL is currently operating. There's a time and score element uh, to that, that people begin to really look at in the fourth quarter, right. Looking at the total points and, or, you know, when we should do that. Um, I do think that there'll be an evolution to that. And I think you're hitting at something really important. I think, you know whether it's mathematically or just like what happened in Dallas recently and you maybe just don't believe in your kicker i do think that should be a four quarter question uh just hey should we go for this just no, no question the, the
1: math tells maybe you maybe you should go for it all the time
2: right well and it gives you a chance to create some momentum right if you if you've got them on the ropes uh there could be some potential to you know go for it again just in relationship to create even further momentum it's almost like you know, no,
1: it's no, it's it's a it's a great point, or or actually, you know, it's 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 kind of like you know, come down when a team you know lets down, they're down fifteen, whatever. You come down and instead of taking the layup, you take the three, you know, just to stick the dagger in. Them. I mean, right. you, you you take. I mean, I, I I would just tell you, like, I follow the Chargers as closely as anybody, and when they lost to the Jaguars, I was just talking with Tom Telesco last week, and I was like, boy, I felt like he got. He's like, yeah, we got really conservative. Yeah, I was right. Then you should have gone for it. They were fourth and three, fourth and and three from like the six yard line or something. They kicked the field goal. Like go for it and then go for two because right. again now if, because you know how it feels like you give them another touchdown. Now they're going for two. Nice score again. Now you just feel like the game is over, over, and we can't right. stop them at anything. So
2: there is an element to that. You know what's interesting? Let me let me throw this out because this is something nobody talks about. That again, your back, ba- your basketball background will help you because I think you really love this type of conversation is I think there's a huge difference between a shot clock and a play clock because the play clock doesn't end the possession. It only says that the ball needs to be stabbed. That's right. The shot clock ends the possession. Right. Right. And so what happens I think in basketball is because we're thinking naturally about the possession ending and Hey, we got to make sure we get a shot before you know, whatever, is that naturally your progressive, your your aggressive thinking and your progressive thinking begins sure. to, you know, with 10 seconds left, it's like, okay, we got to run a ball screen here. We're almost in a different set of offense right at the end of the, the shot clock because we know no matter what happens when that thing hits zero, we got to get a shot up. Correct. But when you're running a play and the play clock is governing it, right, you might be less than your best with three seconds left to go, but your main initiative is not necessarily to make yards. Your main position, if it goes haywire, is to make sure the ball is snapped, right? And so sometimes I think it can get very interesting on what the clock makes you do. And so when you're talking about going for two, right, the the, the clock doesn't indicate in any way go for two until the game clock, And the score begin to indicate to you to go for two. So, for example, if you have one second left on a shot clock and you're you're way beyond the three point line, you got to shoot it like that. It doesn't matter. You're shooting a three, which is a lower percentage shot. But you have to pull it because if not, you're not getting a shot in that possession. Does that make sense? Yes. No, I I understand. I, I completely understand where you're going. I think there's something to the shot clock from a standpoint of how aggressive and progressive your selection to scoring becomes, kind of uh, almost pressed in on because of the the you got to shoot it, you don't have a choice, and so it's almost like if there was a if there was a uh, drive clock, right? You have X amount of you know uh, time to to make a drive, and if that drive clock you if let's say you know you score quickly and you have a lot of time left, maybe you get more points. Right. That would be then you'd be incentivized to run two minute offense versus there's no incentive right now. There's no incentive to run fast or slow. You just want to score points. And so that's why this two point thing, in my opinion, is is so different in football because it's got a lot of discretion.
1: Sure. You score an extra point, whereas, you know, and and from an easier spot, obviously, than where you kick the field goal from. Um, Bill Parcells, of course, the mentor, Bill Belichick famously said more games are lost than won." Mm-hmm. So the, the question I have for you is, did the Falcons actually lose that game as much as the Patriots won that game?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, with that type of lead, you know, and 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 knowing that you've got, you know, obviously control um and the ability to at least make us call, you know, make us call our timeouts earlier in the game. Um, I think there were definitely some things that marginally, you know, I'm sure Kyle and, and Dan wish they had back. So, uh, obviously, being
1: a part of championship teams is amazing. Uh, in our next pod with Jack, we'll get into the Houston Texans. Why Houston? Why it was working? What didn't work? And what ultimately led to that organization becoming kind of a dysfunctional mess? Where he is today and what's next for him? Uh, plus, obviously, more hoop content to come. But my thanks to Jack Easterby for being so incredibly honest and giving us so much of his time. Can't get this content anywhere else. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is all ball.